Welcome to Business Book Talk, the best place to discover great business books. Bob Garlick has talked to over 400 authors, and his questions and comments always get you the best information about the book, the author, and the ideas behind each book. So let's see who Bob's talking to this week. Hey everybody, it's Bob here, and I've got the new alpha, Join the Rising Movement, of influencers and change makers who are redefining leadership. And I've got Danielle Harlan on the line. And you've got a PhD, so should I call you a doctor? <laughs> no, I always joke. I always feel so guilty when I'm on a plane or something and they say, is there a doctor here? And I think, oh, wrong kind. Um, <laughs> no, just Danielle is fine, but I appreciate the offer. Well, I don't know. Maybe they're having a moral crisis. <laughs> you say, well, what type of illness? Is it a moral thing? Are they struggling with their business? No, it's th we think it's the kidneys. Sorry, can't help. Yeah, I can't really help with that. Usually it's a nurse who saves the day, thank goodness. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> this is an awesome book. It's just chock full of amazing stuff and great anecdotes. But before we dive into that, um, what do you think... You know, let's, let's define the word alpha because, you know, everybody knows that alpha, alpha male and stuff like that. But is is it really a book just for alphas or is it for people that want to aspire to become an alpha? Can you make yourself an alpha? That type of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I hit on the word alpha because I think when most of us think of, you know, alphas that we know, we think of people who are powerful and influential, but we don't necessarily like them. And so the whole idea in this book is that you can be powerful and influential, honestly, without being a jerk. Um, and so that it's sort of taking the traditional alpha paradigm and really turning it on its head and saying, actually, you know what, like the rising generation of leaders are, are very different. And I say generation loosely, I think they're sort of people of all ages, but I do think we're reaching this point in time when, you know, norms around leadership are changing and it's really hard to get things done if you're not like a good person who people actually want to, you know, be around and work with and support. Well, do you think that's because of the millennials? It's so interesting. Uh, it, you know, it could be. There's definitely some data around millennials um, looking for different things in their leaders and perhaps previous generations. But I will say I interviewed a ton of people across a variety of fields and ages and even countries for this book. And they were not all millennials. There were many people across all ages who I think have really embraced uh, this approach to leadership. Maybe the millennials are just sort of giving them the nudge that they need to, you know, kind of keep moving with it. Well, I think, it, you know, it's a very powerful, I don't call it a movement because it really isn't a movement, but it really the 65% of the workforce is millennials or something ridiculous like that, or it's getting close to that. And uh, just by their inertia, that that typical attitude is transforming businesses. So I think, you know, books like this are critical because things are changing. And if you are an alpha or you're working with an alpha, this type of uh, approach is actually, it's, it's a different approach. It's a how-to book more than a, a discovery book. It, it's kind of for people that know about being an alpha and what an alpha is like, but want to be more, what's the, maybe a conscious alpha would be a better term. Like somebody that is like, okay, I'm an alpha. How can I maximize the benefits of me being an alpha in a meeting, in the business, in a leadership role, all those type of things? Yeah. I mean, it's such, there's so much wrapped up in what you just said, Bob. It's so interesting <laughs> though. Like I think, um, 
I think that this is a book for people who want to have influence. I mean, that's fundamentally what being an alpha is about. I will say if you're the kind of person that, you know, wants to step on other people or feels like you need to do that to get ahead, then I think this is like not the book for you. This is for people like, like you describe who I think have a certain, um, conscientiousness about their approach and they want to be successful and they want their organizations to be successful. But I think they also want to be a force for good in the world. Um, I think the point about millennials is really well taken. One thing we've seen in the research around millennials is that more than just, um, you know, wanting to, you know, have a good job and make money, they want to find, you know, fulfillment in their work and meaning and purpose. And I think the approach described in the book, in this book, is really um, particularly geared around that, like how to be successful, but also happy and, and do good. Make sure that the time that you have on earth, you know, counts and that you're using it um, in a meaningful way. Oh, absolutely. It, it, it's, you know, there's many books that are written about, you know, somebody pulling up to work in their car and then sighing and saying, oh, exactly. oh I've got to go through this again. And, yeah, and exactly. The transformational part about uh, um, employees is if you're a leader that can supercharge your, your, um, your, your, the people that are working in the organization. So when they're pulling up, they're pulling up early because they couldn't sleep because they're so excited about going to work because everything they do is cool. That is an incredibly powerful organization that has a massive advantage over their competition. Yes. So do you think this book is enabling people to kind of go from that, that type of aha moment in another book and say, okay, but how do I do it? You know, taking the, the – it's very instructional, and, and I know I've kind of said that already, but really to a, an extreme degree. And it's almost like if you take the – if you read the book and you look at it like a university program, it's almost like an MBA in how to be an alpha. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely had to be the new alpha. Um, yeah, I think so. A couple of things that you're saying that I think really like connect well with this book. One is the idea of employee engagement. We want pe- we want ourselves and the people we work with to connect with their work. We want them to, you know, find sen- some sense of like purpose in it, but also be productive. And it's, I mean, that sounds so obvious, right? But I'm sure you know that you know there's some data right now showing that only 13 percent of people worldwide are actually engaged in their work. And I just think it's astounding. You know, if you have like 100 people who work in your organization, you know, statistically speaking, then only 13 of them are really, you know, sort of gung-ho and excited and connecting in with their work. And I, I have to think, like, what are the other 87 doing? And so I think you're totally right. It is leaders' jobs to really help the people they work with make that connection, connect in with the vision, understand how their work really fuels that and is a key piece of that and um, helping people to um, – be as productive as as possible in their work. But you're right. So many people I know, you know, it's sort of like that Sunday night, you know, doldrums where it's the end of the weekend, you're having to go back to work and you just feel this sort of, you know, um, sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. And, and I think this book is designed to help people personally get around that and then also enable their teams to get around that as well and be as, um, fulfilled and engaged as possible. I do think, like you said, though, the book is, it's not one of those books you just sit down and read in a single reading and think like, okay, I know how to do this. It's very applied. It is very much like a course. Um, Like you said, like a university course, it has three major parts. So there's the personal excellence part, and that's all the good habits of being a good human being, right? That we know from science and philosophy, you know, be emotionally intelligent, get enough sleep, drink enough water, you know, be organized, prioritize your time. And then there's 
personal leadership, which is sort of like, who am I as a human being? Where am I going? How do I sort of set a vision and enact a plan? Um, and then the final piece is that team and organizational leadership piece, right? Like, so how do I lead others effectively, whether it's my, you know, informal group or a team at work or an entire organization. And there's tons of you know, exercises and, and skill building activities along the way. So you don't just read about the concepts, you actually test them out. Well, that's one thing about this book that really stands out for me is it doesn't just jump straight into part three. It actually says, hey, I don't care how good you think you are or how much you've got your shit together in business and life. You don't. If you read this chapter, you're like, wow, I, uh, she's right. I, I got to work on some stuff. And it's usually the stuff that's painful, the stuff you try and avoid. And folks, if you're not struggling, if it's not painful for you to do, then you're not growing. It's like when you exercise. If you exercise properly, regularly, you're, you're in a bit of pain at the start. But then after a while, you're not in so much pain. And that's because your body is getting used to it. Same thing with this book. Totally. So for you, what do you think the biggest pain point for 99% of people in business is? Oh, that's a great question. I think um, for most of the people I work with, it's an issue of having um, a general idea of what you want to do, but not, not clear priorities. And then particularly for people who are starting organizations or, or new in their career or, or new in their role, just getting a sense of what your priorities are and how to you know, make time to do the things you need to do when there probably isn't enough time to do everything. Um, so the new alpha is very much about, okay, here, here's the actual process for doing that. And, you know, and we interviewed a ton of people um, in different positions to get a sense of I think sometimes you see those people who seem to do that well and it feels like magic. Um, but I'm interested in, okay, how do we break down that magic? What are the steps? What should I focus on first? Uh, and I think you're totally right. It starts with reflecting honestly on myself as a human being. And only then when I've done that kind of self-assessment uh, and built that self-awareness, am I ready to really do that with a group of people? And so the book is designed developmentally according to that sort of general approach. You know, I always noticed when I was in, a, in an organization and we did a uh – you know, a self-assessment. We had an expert come in, like it was like a eight-hour program or a three-day program, and everybody was, "Oh, this is great." And then it would kind of break down because the the the, the owner, the CEO, just kind of walked away from it and didn't have any accountability. So, well, great, okay, guys, you go do your thing. I'm going to go back to doing all the things that I do. And what I like about the book is that if you're going to be a new alpha, part of it is being getting yourself together, believing in it, and, you know, doing that for a period of time before asking other people to commit to what you're doing instead of asking other people to commit before you even consider jumping on board. Exactly. It's sort of like, let's get the basic framework in place. Let me make sure I can do this. And then sort of roping other people in. Because what happens, like I've seen that happen so many times, what you're describing, right? Where they like have this big workshop, everyone's excited. And then, you know, whomever is leading it sort of gets busy with other things and there's no follow-up or accountability. And what happens, it's not just that like the follow-up doesn't happen that needs to happen, but people start to really lose faith then in the leadership and the approach because it's like, well, I invested all my time and energy in this and we're not doing anything with it. So I'm not going to continue, you know, to take these things seriously when you bring them up. So I think it's a real problem. It's something I talk about with my clients a lot. Um, you know, I get opportunities all the time to, you know, come in and give a talk on this. And I, I'm always like, well, 
you know, what is your long-term goal here? Because if it's actually to change a behavior, like a one-shot workshop is not likely to do it. Um, that's not going to add value for you. And it's, you know, it's not going to bring me fulfillment because I don't think I'm actually doing anything real there, um, no matter how great, you know, the one-hour workshop is. So I always try to work with organizations to think about, you know, realistically, what is your capacity for this? Um, like who, who on the executive team is the sponsor and, you know, do they have the time and energy to really keep it going? And of course, I'm happy to help support that um, when when organizations are committed. But I think you're making a really good point. It's a lot easier said than done. And we can really lose ground when we sort of implement things full force and then drop them like better to scaffold up to that. Mm. Well, you, you mentioned something very interesting there is um, basically it's based on a book called Getting to Know. And it's a going into a, a discussion or, or an initial meeting and figuring out whether it's even worth your while to take the person on as a new client. And that's a big, big headspace jump for a lot of people where they're so desperate for work, they're, they're grabbing at straws, and they're causing fires in the future that they're not aware of. Like if, if the person doesn't have integrity, if they're not organized, they're going to end up wasting a ton of your time, which will make you panic even more because you don't have enough time and you just get into this circle. What's nice about this book is if you do the exercise and if you are moving forward, it will give you the power to actually stop in a meeting, step back from the meeting, say, do I want to work with this person? Is this person a jerk? Um, is this person, like you said, going to give me fulfillment? Are they going to be happy the result? or am I going to compromise, then they're not going to be happy and then they're just going to bad mouth and ruin my brand. So getting to know, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you go in and actually turn down work without feeling too much pain? Yeah, I mean, this is so interesting. So I think this really draws upon the first chapter of the book, which is all about ethics and character. And there's a section in there on courage and integrity. And so the idea behind this chapter is, um, so it's in part one, personal excellence. And the idea is that if we make those kinds of habits, like actual habits, right, not just like, oh, I should, you know, have some courage here and realize that this isn't the right fit, and I should be brave and say no, but actual things that we do every day and that we track uh, and sort of reflect on that we get better at those things over time. So I think, um, you know, I, I know certainly early in my career and probably more recently, even if I can think about it, I've had moments where I haven't acted with as much courage or integrity as I would have liked. But what I like about this book is it sets you up to really reflect on those moments then. Okay, like when did you act with courage? How did that go? What was the result? What would you have done differently, if anything? All right, when have you not? You know, how did that go? And you sort of compare them. And over time, the idea is that you'll have behavioral change if you keep practicing and reflecting. But I will say personally, I think it's really hard because sometimes when you're new at something, either new in a role or new in an organization, you haven't quite you haven't quite figured out whether it is a fit or not. And it's only when you're you know sort of partway through you think, oh my god, you know this is this is not a fit. Um, and that can be a little bit more awkward to work your way out of. But the idea I think is that if you have that habit built up, you'll be more quick to recognize those moments when they come up and act appropriately. And the last thing I'll just say is maybe you've experienced this too, Bob. I think sometimes. Acting with courage and integrity um, is one of those things that, like a lot of the concepts in this book, that are really easy to talk about, but they're harder to actually do, or it's awkward, right? When you do it, you're like, oh, I don't think this is right because, uh, you know, but you don't want to necessarily sour the relationship because maybe there's something that could come up, you know, in the long run. And I think the book really walks you through like that approach to being emotionally intelligent and making sure you're not burning bridges, but also being true to yourself. Yeah, that that definitely is it's very tough. I mean, um, 
every now and again I will run into somebody who is pretty impressive and they are, you know, they're pretty amazing to talk to and, and because I talk to so many people, I, I'm, you know, a practice listener and, you know, all this wonderful stuff comes out and then they just stick their foot in their mouth and it's like, oh man, if only you knew, if only you knew. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I think though people can get better at that. One of the things the the, I say driving philosophies behind this book is the idea that, again, you don't read a book in a single sitting and, you know, you're completely better at all these things. But the idea is, okay, how can I um, take that knowledge of something and turn it into know-how? And that happens over time with practice, like repeated opportunities for practice and reflection. And if you can get it, you know, feedback as well. Um, you know, it's interesting. You were, you were talking about uh, reflection. Do you think it's harder for men to reflect on things, uh, like like really honestly reflect on things, than it is for women? That's such an interesting. I get so many gender questions, so I'm like deep in the research on this. Um, in my experience, no. Uh, it could just be though that the people who reach out to me are the people that are naturally more self-reflective. But no, like I would think that there might be a difference there, but there's not. Another similar question that I get um, that's sort of interesting is: Are are women more emotionally intelligent than men? So there's a whole section in the book on emotional intelligence, like what it is, how to do it. And the answer, actually, the research shows no. Uh, many people assume women are. There are certain facets of it that men are better at or women are better at. But overall, like we haven't really found gender differences there. Um, there. It could be, though, that men are socialized to sort of, uh, you know, act as though they're not as, as reflective or that women are socialized to act as though they're more. But um, when you actually dig into the data, it doesn't look like there are huge differences there. Hmm. You know, the, 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 um, the world of, of business has changed radically, but yet it hasn't changed at all. Do you think that, uh, you know, with, with, and I, I don't want to say the millennials again, but really the, the more books out there about being more self-aware, trying to build a, uh, a business that's more ethical, uh, building a business that's not about profit at all costs, but, but sustainability. And, and this is, you know, there's been so many new books come out recently. It's like, yeah, if we don't figure this out, it's not that your business will win over other business. We just won't be around anymore and everybody loses. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. So with your book in mind, what was your major motivation? I mean, you know, you obviously have some pretty large goals in your life um, and you're because of your writing and, and the things you say in your book, you're, you know, you're living what the book is about. But <laughs> trying my best. Yeah. Well, okay. That, and that's a good point. It, it's almost like, you know, if you're an alcoholic, it doesn't mean that you can never drink for the rest of your life. And every now and again, you may fall off. But just know because you fall off doesn't mean you're not allowed to jump back on the wagon. Do you feel it's the same way with a book like this and a philosophy like this? It's like, yeah, it's okay to fail. It's okay to, oh my gosh, I've been messing up for three weeks or a year and say, time to get back in the book and get uh, get the company or get myself back in line. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I mean, I give a lot of talks on the book and I use it in a lot of the courses and programs that I facilitate. And it's funny, people will be like, oh, well, you must be an expert at this. And and certainly I, I know all of the content in the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's much easier said than done. And there are definitely areas of the book where I think I am stronger and then other areas where I'm like, I really need to work on that. And I actually had a moment the other day where I was talking to my spouse and I was like, you know what? I really need to go back to um, chapter eight. And I was like, I need to go back and, and really reread that and make sure that my plan is clear because it was sort of vague when I said it and I should have been checking in more regularly and I'm going to do that. Um, I also just got off of like a long leg of uh, sort of book tour activity. So I was in New York and Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you know when you travel for work that sometimes it can be hard to maintain the health and wellness pieces, you know, getting enough sleep in between things, eating right because you're on the road, um, you know, staying hydrated. And I really was uh, conscious of that. I was thinking, you know, this is normally an area of strength, but wow, when I travel, like I need to make sure that I'm really well prepared so that this doesn't fall to the wayside. Um, And I think that's true for anyone. I don't know any single person who's amazing at all of these things. And it is funny. I mean, I'm sure some people look at this and think, oh, well, these are like very basic ideas. Like I don't need to read this, but I don't think any of the content itself is rocket science. But I think that the approach in terms of like putting the ideas into action and actually trying them out is what makes it so novel and different and useful to people. Um, Like I know what emotional intelligence is. I can tell you all the different theories on it, you know, like why it's important. But I definitely have moments when I'm frustrated and I feel like, gosh, I really struggle with self-management. It's not that I don't know what it is or that I should be doing it, but it can be tricky. And I I think that's true for anyone. Hmm. Now, for a person that's, you know, uh, strapped for time or has the uh, illusion that they're strapped for time, um, what's a chapter that they should read if they feel they don't have time to read the whole book? Is it chapter eight or, or should they read somewhere else? That's so interesting. Yeah, chapter eight definitely relates to that. That's the idea of really putting together your own plan for life and figuring out what your priorities are. I will say, though, a related chapter that people love is chapter six, which is define your personal leadership identity, because it's very much a framing chapter for who am I as a person? How does this affect um, my vision for my life? And then also my approach to leadership. So that is like a nice framing chapter. Um, But yeah, definitely um, chapter eight around planning. You know, what are my priorities? Okay, what are the specific tasks and and goals that I need to set and then checking in that can be very helpful when you have a lot going on Hmm. you know you're a very smart lady and uh, you you know you're well researched and you speak and all that type of stuff but something happens when you've gone from the speaking part to the writing part when you're taking all that knowledge and putting it into chapters and working with an editor what for you was your aha moment where something you known about for a long time crystallized right down to your core yeah, I mean, so we've hit on this a little bit, but I think I'm very interested in the difference between knowledge of and know-how. Because in my life, I've always been obsessed with leadership. Like ever since I was a kid, I was so interested in sort of who had influence and and how did they use it and hopefully, you know, they used it for good, but you know, how did they manage that process? And and so I read a lot of leadership books and I, you know, watched TED Talks and all those things, and I had a lot of knowledge of leadership, right? I knew a lot about it, but when I actually came in to serious leadership roles in my career, I realized, wow, like I can know all of these things. Like I, I know in theory how to communicate effectively or how to run an effective meeting or how to set a vision for an organization, but it's so much harder in practice. So I think in writing this book, um, it really crystallized my commitment to not just giving people knowledge of, but know how. And, and how that happened was because 
I talk about a particular concept and then think, okay, how do I make it so that someone reading this book is actually better at this? Like they don't just understand effective communication in an organization, but have some real strategies for doing it. Um, and that was really, really hard, but also super rewarding. And it's probably the number one thing that people email me about, or I get letters about, um, is that, wow, this actually made me a better leader because of this. So super rewarding, but yeah, it was hard to translate that, um, into the written, you know, the written format of the book. Well, you know what's interesting, communication, like I, I think communication is probably the most important business thing out there because people do it so poorly or they're not good at receiving information. And I think everybody talks about like how to write a great email and how to communicate and how to make a speech or a TED talk or whatever. But how do you receive that knowledge unemotionally like there's so many days when like I'm in a frustrated move whatever and I'll read an email and think that person's yelling at me and they're not why would when was the last time you wrote an email where we're yelling people which we all do but you step <laughs> away we don't send it <laughs> yeah, exactly you know that's when an email takes two to three hours to write you you dump you come back and say okay maybe I'm being an asshole here I'll take that paragraph out and you get it down from three pages down to like a paragraph then you're usually safe but really, I mean, how how do people step away from that day-to-day -day activity? Because it's not like something you say, okay, I'm going to get in my meditative state now. I'm not going to take anything emotionally. Now I'm going to read the 20 emails and not react knee-jerk style. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do think people could write emails better. <laughs> That's probably why there's so many articles on that. So let me just start with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've certainly been on the receiving end of those as well. And, um, you know, nine times out of 10, it's unintentional. Someone's just writing quickly and um, perhaps are more brusque or they don't realize that it's coming across that way, um, even if they don't mean it that way. For me, the number one thing I recommend to people on the receiving end then is just to, you know, take a deep breath, pause, walk away, do what you need to do to calm down. But I wouldn't respond back in email. I would call the person or walk over to their office if you're able to do that. You know what I mean? Take it to to a face-to-face -face or at least verbal communication or oral where it's not like in written format. Because to me, that it's just going to stay confusing and chaotic if you're responding back in email because you really don't understand their intent. Um, so just kind of nipping the email piece in the bud and, and picking up the phone. But the other thing I will say is I, I think part of the part of what you're hitting on here is this idea of that I mentioned earlier, self-management, which is a key component of emotional intelligence, right? Can I feel these frustrated emotions or negative emotions and really control myself so that I can act effectively, you know, as a human being and as a leader? And so one strategy I've given people, and I use it myself, um, is it's a strategy I actually learned on a TV show. I saw a woman do it on a TV show and I thought, this is so brilliant because there's actually some psychology behind it. When you're feeling frustrated, take the word calma, C-A-L-M-A, which is Spanish for like calm or tranquil, and turn it into an acronym of things you like. So calma would be like uh, C, cats, A, I like uh, aquariums, L, um, I don't know, lions, M, my mom, A, apples. And it sounds like a silly activity, like why on earth would you do this when you're feeling frustrated over a colleague's rude email? But the, the mental activity of, of taking that word and turning it into an acronym actually makes your brain focus go from that like quote unquote rep reptilian sort of like hindbrain area back to the executive center because it's a logical task, right? So it takes you out of that emotional state and can actually calm you down, even though the activity itself is admittedly, you know, sort of ridiculous. Um, but it'll actually, it'll change your focus in a way that you're going to deal with it more productively. So I've recommended that to a lot of people. 
And I actually had people come back even like years later and say, oh, I'm still doing that. Like it really works. Um, you know, so if you can remember to do that in the moment, I think it's really helpful. Well, you know, it what it what it does for me is it gives you a tool that you can go you can fall back on if you feel you know, maybe I'm being a little angry today because you don't know. You, it's you. You're talking with yourself. And you say, like, am I being a jerk? Am I not being? Because a lot of times you're not. The other person is. And so how do I deal with a person? And maybe they're being a jerk because they're having bad communication day or, or they just don't understand the issue. There's miscommunication. And I think nine times out of ten, it's all about uh, poor communication, not the right information, uh, misinformation. And, and like a huge thing that we have right now with uh, coming out with Facebook and Google was um, fake news. And, and, and people just being lazy. It's like, oh, I, ha- I don't have the time, so I'm going to read something and I'm just going to assume it's the truth. It's, well, then you're just going to cause way more time loss in the future by doing that. And it, it, it's exponential now because how fast, um, you know, bad news travels. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's all part of a strategy about, you know, deal with the small brush fire now, even though you think it's going to take up too much of your day, because that small brush fire was going to be a huge raging forest fire in a week or two, which is going to destroy your whole week. Yeah. I think I, w- I will add two things that I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. I think another communication issue, and this is something interesting that I think is easy to forget, is that sometimes people just don't communicate, right? Like leaders will get information and then they'll just kind of forget to tell their team, hey, you know, we're pivoting on this strategy. <laughs> and so lots of times then employees, I mean, that causes incredible amounts of stress um, and frustration. You're working on something and you don't realize the whole organization is sort of moving in the other direction. So thinking about, you know, what are my responsibilities as a leader, whether I'm like a, an official leader, you know, with some fancy title or just someone who's, um, you know, de facto leader, you know, of my group because, you know, I exhibit the these qualities, how can I make sure that I'm communicating regularly? And so what we outline in the book is a process for thinking about, okay, what literally what opportunities in my day do I have to communicate things? Like, am I walking around the building sort of, you know, having informal conversations? Do we have like a weekly meeting? Do I send out, you know, a quarterly email, whatever it is, but just making sure that I have those regular touch points uh, with people to make sure that they have the relevant information. Um, Even, you know, company newsletters can do that. Um, The other thing I'll say, though, I think you hit on so well is this idea of, um, like, checking sources in terms of our communication. So the book in chapter one talks about, um, so this is the chapter on character and ethics, but the fifth component of this is practice good citizenship and stewardship. And the idea, and that really very much gets to, you know, thinking about what information do I have and how can I think critically about it? Um, and I'm, I'm surprised all the time. I'm sure you see this where people will post stories on social media and I'm like, oh, wow, that's really interesting and provocative. And I click on it and clearly, like, it doesn't say what they thought or it's not real when I do some you know, investigating. And I just think I would be so embarrassed if I posted something like that, you know, and it wasn't accurate. Just take a moment. It takes under a minute, like 30 seconds to, you know, do a quick Google search and see like what is actually going on here. Um, And it's scary. It's scary how much misinformation is spreading that way. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think a lot of it is kind of malicious as well. So if if you're not, you know, if you're not fact checking or if it just seems too outrageous, I mean, there's lots of websites out there that's all they do is is research and you've got some people though that are just so tuned out of reality that you you'll post back and say oh i just checked in on snoops.com and this is actually not factual or 80 percent factual 
and then they'll say something. Oh, it's new, that, that's part of the mechanism that's attacking me. And, and God, come on. You're well, not that yeah. important. <laughs> well, I feel like, you know, I, I always feel like I have an obligation to like speak the truth. And sometimes people just aren't going to believe it. And, and that's unfortunate. But I, I certainly am going to speak up when I see something that's inaccurate. Um, although, yeah, I've definitely run into people where it's like, <laughs> I'm like, I've shown you all the facts. This isn't correct. And, you know, they're going to believe what they're going to believe. And I think that's really, really unfortunate. Um, I mean, I know we all have strong feelings about you know, topics like politics, for example, but it seems like I'm not doing my part as a citizen if I don't at least acknowledge the facts. And and sometimes that means that, you know, a candidate I like actually like isn't as great as I think, you know, and I have to admit that doesn't mean I don't still support them, but at least I go in with sort of eyes wide open. I will say one other thing this reminds me of that's um, suggested in the book. There's a great news source, um, maybe you've heard of it. It's called Next Draft by a guy named Dave Pell. I actually get it. It's a daily newsletter. It has the 10, you know, sort of top stories from the news. And he does a great job of summarizing them. And he brings in, if there's like a particular topic, for example, like the recent, you know, U.S. presidential elections, he'll bring in a couple of links to top articles from really high quality resources. And I feel like if you don't have time to read, you know, the New York Times or whatever you read, you know, front cover to back cover, I think those, you know, 10 news stories, that he really summarizes in that daily email or pure gold. I think if you read that quickly, you can, um, you know, easily have a sense of what's going on in the world and be, you know, reasonably well assured that it's high quality information. Hmm. Well, that's a great tip. Let's talk a little bit about how to read this book. Is it a book that you should read cover to cover or can you just like jump into a section that you think is relevant to you? I love this question, Bob. Yeah, I will say as the author, I'm like, yes, read it cover to cover. (laughs) Start in chapter one. It's it's so much better that way. You know, and and generally I will say that's my recommendation, but I think it is a really intensive book. Like each chapter could be, you know, a workshop. Actually, this is so funny. I was talking to a friend of mine who's in marketing recently and he read it and he's like, oh, it's like a series of mini workshops. And I was like, well, I'm going to start describing it that way. So I think if you do look at it that way, then it's useful to open the table of contents, which is very descriptive. There's all the little subsections and things like that and say, okay, you know, which is my highest priority here? Like which one seems the most interesting or relevant to what I'm struggling with right now? You know, and if that's chapter one, great, start with chapter one. But if it's chapter 10, then I would say go ahead and skip ahead. I don't think you'll get the same thing out of it if you're sort of picking and choosing chapters as you would. I mean, it's designed specifically to have the chapters in a particular order, but I still think you'll you'll get what you're looking for out of the, you know, whatever chapter you choose to read first. I think you'll get more if you read them all. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's a beautifully, you know, organized book. I mean, just by going through the contents, you got like the three, is it three or four parts? Yeah. Three parts. And then, you know, it, it, it's got some overview, but then underneath that, it's broken down even um, a, a third time. So you can really dig down and say, you know what, uh, proactive, I really, that's what I need to, you know, be thinking about. Exactly. So even if there's like an entire chapter looks really long, you can say, okay, well, there's a subsection here. Um, So people love, this is so funny, I've been getting a lot of response on, there's a um, section in chapter two on minimizing time spent with toxic people. (laughs) For some reason, people (laughs) love that one. It's really funny. I assigned that part of that chapter to a course that I'm teaching right now through Stanford online, but I didn't assign that section and they all read it anyway. And that's all they wanted to talk about. So yeah, I think if you're like, okay, I basically, you know, I have relationships pretty well handled, but Ooh, that toxic people thing, that looks interesting. Then I would say, yeah, skip ahead, read that. I think there's some good advice in there. Well, you know, let's define toxic. 
um, what what is a toxic person? Somebody that's always negative, somebody that just attacks your ideas, or just you know somebody like you are in in uh, that that's just almost chronically negative, uh, almost on a psychopathic level. Yeah, those are all really good descriptors. Uh, the way I define it in the book is I think toxic people are people that drain your energy and make you feel like the worst version of yourself. So, you know, for different people, um, we might have different reactions, right? I might find someone toxic and, and you don't just because of our particular personality differences. Um, but I think the important thing is to think about like what what kinds of people to me, you know, feel toxic and making sure that I'm avoiding them. And I think sometimes I'll just like add to this, particularly for people early in their careers, um, but I think this is perhaps true of all of us at some point or another, we come across these people and we think, oh, there's something I'm doing wrong, right? Like I need to improve in some way or I just have to figure out how to get through. And I think I, I applaud that effort because I think sometimes that is true. You know, you can get through to people with, um, you know, some good relationship management skills, but there are other people whom you'll never get through to. And I think at some point you have to know when to kind of cut those ties and just say, okay, this is not productive because it's such a drain on me as a human being. Like I need to figure out how to not be around this person or interact with them as often because it's not good for me. It's not good for me as a human being and it's not good for my work or, you know, whatever I'm trying to get done. Hmm. Well, you know, and it's almost like if if you're at work and you don't have the option of just ignoring that person, maybe finding somebody that relates to that person and talk to them and trying to figure it out from a third person perspective, because you may find out that, oh, I just don't have that sense of humor and the person's just trying to be funny and it grates my nerves. So I I will have this guy, Joe, is going to, you know, I'll, I'll change Joe's position. I mean, if you're in a position of power to deal with this person and then I'll get reports from Joe because at least I'll, he'll be my filter to make him less caustic. Yeah, I think that brings up this other good point that um, I think it's good to identify who these people are and minimize your time. But also, like, I would first, like, really check myself and say, like, maybe I'm just not understanding something. Or another thing that comes up a lot, and maybe you've seen this too, is that someone seems like they're like that, but when you really dig in, they're struggling with something. You know, they're struggling with something on their end that's like, oh gosh, you know, I had no idea your spouse is in the hospital or, you know, your dog just died or whatever it is, um, that there's something that's driving that sort of negative approach, then, then that'll resolve it as well. Well, for me, it's um, kind of checking on yourself. And am I in a bad mood? And then maybe I'm not, maybe, you know, because I'm a pretty happy guy most of the time. But every time and again, I'm, I'm like, I'm horrible. And um, if I'm not aware of it uh, and I basically spew a bunch of toxic crap for a day or an hour or whatever, I actually have to go back the next day and apologize. And nine times out of ten, people say, oh, no, no, it's okay, Bob, or oh, no, I didn't feel that. Even if they did because they're just being nice to you because they're trying to show you that they respect – that you've come back to them and said, you know, if I was, you know, a caustic in my email or a bit negative yesterday, I'm really sorry I was having a bad day. That's part of your responsibility as a leader, as a human being, to try and communicate when you're being bad so people have the opportunity to be nice back to you. I mean, you know, nine times out of ten, people aren't going to attack you for saying that, uh, oh, sorry, I was an asshole yesterday. 
<laughs> totally. So this makes me think of two thoughts. One is I think to- I think we all have our moments, right, where we're not at our best. I think the difference between you and someone who's truly toxic is that yours are moments in time. They you don't consistently drain people's energy and make them feel like the worst version of themselves, right? Like to be truly toxic, I think it has to be something that's consistent. Um, so I think that's a really good point. And it also Again, it gets to this idea of if it's something that's just come up suddenly or it's not how they usually behave, then there might be something else going on. And rather than sort of like distancing yourself, you should try to be empathetic. Totally different strategies there. Um, So it's, you know, this idea of is it like a long-term thing or is it a new thing? Um, The other thing you're hitting on is I love this idea of should leaders say they're sorry? And I was at this – a meeting with a group of women recently and someone asked that, like, should I apologize when, you know, should I apologize at work? I think women especially, right, are like conscientious about this. Like I, I, you know, I maybe want to apologize for something, but then maybe it'll, I'll be seen as less powerful or overly apologetic. And so they, you know, being a leadership coach, they all kind of turn and look at me and I was like, yeah, if you made a mistake, say you're sorry. (laughs) Like don't apologize for something you didn't do. That's silly and unnecessary. Um, But certainly like, if you if you made an error, then just call yourself out on it in a polite way and just like, wow, really sorry. And so there's a section in the book that talks about, you know, how to do that, you know, in a way that um, is honest, but also doesn't dwell on it too long and allows you to move on productively. But if you have those moments where you mess up and you don't say you're sorry, I mean, people start to notice that and really resent you. And it feels dishonest and probably not authentic also, because everyone knows, you know, you've made the mistake. Well, uh, and on top of that, then you start building a culture of, of dishonesty or, or not right. people not owning up to their mistakes. Not taking responsibility, yeah. Yep, that's the basics in life. That's the difference between a child and an adult. A child makes mistakes and tries to hide the mistake, and an adult owns up to the mistake and tries to fix it as soon as possible. Exactly. Yep, I think that's totally right. Um, and, you know, again, it goes, I think there's a driving idea behind this book that is, good leadership starts by being a good human being. And I think what you just said really underscores that, right? Like as a good human being, we should apologize when we make a mistake or own it, you know, and figure out, okay, how can we productively work through this? Um, and if you can't do that, then you're, as a human being, you're going to struggle, uh, you know, just in terms of relationships with people. But certainly as a leader, when you're responsible for other people and they are looking to you for how to act, that kind of bad behavior can really then multiply in dysfunctional ways. Mistakes, you know, we kind of touched on it just now, but um, do you think that there's a there's a, a real problem in the in the workforce right now where people um, can't handle mistakes or can't handle failure? That's interesting. <sighs> yes, I do think we have an issue that is so interesting because I'm here in Silicon Valley right now, and you know, one of the mottos here, right, is fail fast, learn fast. And you would think then that everyone would be okay with failure, right? We, it's such an innovative area; we're all failing constantly and learning and improving. But even here, I see people struggle with that. And so, it's one of the things I write about in the book, um, in chapter four, you know, embrace failure and continuous improvement. And I just don't think you can do anything interesting, um, you know, if you don't take risk. And particularly as you advance in your career into senior leadership roles, you know, a lot of those roles involve making decisions that you know have risk associated with them. And if you can't take risk, you're not going to go very far, you know, as a leader, but also you know with the organization. Like it's just not going to move in the way it needs to move. Um, and you just, I think, the thing to think about with failure is like when is failure okay versus not and just be honest with yourself right like okay this one it's gonna you know it's gonna suck if we fail but we can like pick up and it'll be fine or this one like no we absolutely can't fail because it'll drain our resources or sink us as an organization um and really kind of differentiating those different types of um 
like projects or work and being honest with people. Like this is one where you can't fail. Like here's another one where we can. Um, and then learning from failure, thinking about, okay, that failure was part of the process, but what, what did we learn from it and how can we use that information to do better going forward or be successful going forward? But I, I honestly have never seen someone who's really successful or an organization who's really successful that hasn't like majorly failed, you know, at, at least one point, if not multiple points. Well, it, it's almost, you know, for, for me also, um, it's defining failure in, in, in um, in a more succinct way, well, not in a succinct way, in a more realistic way. I mean, uh, one of the biggest learning lessons a manager can have or, or somebody that's trying to become a manager or become a better manager is assigning something to be done by somebody and then them coming back and they they have done what you've asked them to do, but they have done it in a totally different way than you would have done it. That isn't them failing. That As a manager, you shouldn't attack the, the way they got there, how they got there. You should applaud them for getting to the solution because that's what delegation is. It doesn't matter how they solve the problem. It's just that they have. And I think the the, the problem with a lot of hands-on managers or, or you know overly nitpicky managers is they don't see that. And it's very caustic and it's very bad. And they're it's going to destroy their ability to actually move up in the organization. Yeah, I think it's I totally agree with you. It's so interesting. It relates back to this idea we talked about earlier of employee engagement. And when you have a manager who's I mean, let, frankly, like let's just call it what it is, it's micromanagement, right? And there's certainly like times and places where you do actually need to do that because um, someone has like a low level of skill or it's such a high risk project and whatever, um, that you might want to be more hands-on in that way. But but often, leaders and managers do that when they don't need to, and it totally kills people's engagement, right? Because it's like, why am I going to work on this if I have no autonomy or say, and you're just like telling me every step of the way what to do? Like, it's so intellectually boring for me then, you know? And I've definitely had managers like that. Um, you know, and I'll be honest, I probably had my moments as a, a leader or manager where I've done that too, although certainly I, I hope I've, you know, moved move past that when it's not necessary but yeah i think it kills people's motivation yeah and and you know it, it's also if you're working with a team or you have an assignment or, or, or a task that has to get done and you, you've uh, delegated to a team and they kind of screw up that doesn't mean that they're going to be like like that on every single assignment you can't you know, you got to give them a chance to fail multiple times, which is sounds crazy, but you really have to because then you've got a, a case study where you can pull the leader or you can pull the team together and say, look, guys, guess what? You seem to screw up all the time. It seems to me that you're acting like children. So for the next assignment, I'm going to micromanage the hell out of you. And <laughs> then that's going to be your motivation to basically kick ass the next time I give you an assignment and I'm going to give you one more chance or we're going to have to start talking about bringing other people in. Yeah, it's so, well, it's so interesting. So I always think about when someone fails, it's like one of two reasons. One is that it was something where there's just so many unknowns. We couldn't know how something was going to work out until we put it into action. I don't necessarily think that's anyone's fault. I mean, sometimes you just don't know what's going to work or what's not until you get it out into the field and get feedback. Um, but sometimes I, I also, before I you know blame my employees, I always try to think, what could I have done differently? Like, should I get, have given more clear expectations around something? You know, was I overly vague? And so oftentimes I'll find that, oh, I see that you did this. Like, it didn't work out right. I guess I should have told you, you know, this parameter. I just didn't even think or I assumed you'd know or, or you know, maybe I was busy and it, you know, didn't come up and I forgot to tell you. But there are oftentimes things I think that leaders and managers can do if there is the kind of failure that, 
ends up being really counterproductive. But many times, I, I honestly, like I've had people fail at things and we'll just sit down and be like, okay, <laughs> like what happened? Why did it happen? We call it failure analysis. Uh, I talk in the book about after action reviews, which is a, an idea I took from the military, right? But when something happens, like let's talk about what worked, what didn't, what do we think the key levers were there and, and what can we do differently going forward? I will say though, to your point, I think if there's like a pattern over time where I'm like, okay, like this isn't something you should have failed at. Like we're pretty clear. I gave clear expectations. Um, you know, we've learned from past ones and it feels like there's not improvement. Then, then yeah, I'd start to be concerned that there was an issue with an employee. Um, but oftentimes I found there are issues that are completely unrelated to people's competence. And it kind of gets back to the idea of communication as well. Like, did I communicate as effectively as I could have? Exactly. And I'll quote from the book, communicate, communicate, and then communicate some more. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, do it as much as you can, as often as you can. And the other thing about communication is not only does it make the organization run more effectively, but people love feeling like they're in the know, you know, that someone's like looping them in with, you know, all the details and changes and things that are coming down the pipeline. That's very empowering for people. I know it is for me. What's one thing that our listening audience can do today to get on the path of the new alpha? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think check out the book, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's in, in bookstores everywhere on Amazon. Check it out from your library. Um, like, there's a lot of good ways, I think, to get your hands on the content. But one specific action you can take is I would say, you know, set a goal for yourself today. Like, what's one thing that you want to get done? You know, whether it's work or personal, it can be either. And then, like, set an alarm on your phone or, or on your calendar, however you like to do it, to go off at the end of the day. And then check in with yourself. Did I get that done? If so, you know, why? What factors allowed me to do that? If not, why not? And what would I do differently going forward to make sure I get, you know, my goals done or goals relating to the, you know, specific one I set today? I've been talking with Danielle and it's been awesome. The new alpha joined the rising movement of influencers and chain makers who are redefining leadership. Thanks for chatting with us. Thanks for having me, Bob. Thanks for listening. Please share this interview if you think your network of business friends would benefit from it. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite Android app. Also, don't forget to check out www.businessbooktalk.com for more business book interviews.